So for today's sermon, we're continuing on in our series. We just started a new series last week. We're continuing with it. And it's a series on short books of the New Testament, sort of those books that are short, that are probably not as well known, maybe a little bit neglected, not treated as often. Uh, And we want to say, well, hey, they're part of Scripture. They're awfully important, right? If they weren't important, they wouldn't be there in Scripture, a part of God's Word, and so we want to give them their due. And so that's what we're doing. And last week we took a look at Jude, very short, just one chapter. Today we're going to be taking a look at Philemon, also short, just one chapter. This is one of those books of the Bible that I think when you mention it, people often go, Philemon? Question mark? Is there, there's a book named Philemon in the Bible? I don't really know about it or know much of it. Um, I think certainly plenty of people are still aware of it as well, but it's one that I think often is so uh, poorly known that some people who may know their Bibles quite well might actually be so unacquainted with it they don't even know it's there, just that one little page in their Bible, one little chapter, and yet there it is in the Bible and of great significance as a part of Scripture. And so we want to make sure to give it its due. And so we're going to look at Philemon, the whole chapter, all 25 verses. But before we sort of dive right in and and start reading our way through verse 1 to 25, Uh, I want to kind of set the context, talk about the letter uh, a little bit as a whole right before we dive in. And so this was written by Paul, the apostle, uh, and it was written to Philemon, hence the name Philemon. That's why we call it that. Uh, And Philemon was a member of the Colossian church. And in fact, this letter was sent along with the letter to the Colossians, right? The letter that we have in our scripture, Colossians. This letter, Philemon, was sort of an accompanying letter that was sent to the Colossian church, right? Colossians was sort of sent to the whole church. And here, Philemon is sent really specifically to Philemon. Certainly, if you look at the heading, and we'll talk about this, the whole church is actually included as recipients of the letter, but really they're just sort of acknowledged in the heading, sort of the the opening greeting, and then also sort of the final greeting at the end. The rest of it, it's all really just all writing directly to Philemon. And so a good question to ask is sort of, you know, why does Paul write this letter? Why does he write this letter, Philemon, to Philemon? Sort of what's going on? What's sort of the whole backdrop of this uh, since it's significant? Uh, And it's quite clear, you you sort of pick up on this just from from reading the letter, but what has happened uh, is that one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, uh, has actually run away. And probably not only did he run away, but he probably, can't quite say this with certainty, uh, but probably what we see in in this letter, he stole something or some things as well. So he stole something and then he booked it out of town, right, left, you know, fled as a slave. You know, whether he stole something and then was afraid, oh no, I'm in trouble, I I better just run, or maybe he sort of already had this plan to to run away as a slave and figured, you know, I got to kind of fund my runaway and maybe the best way to fund that is I'll steal some of my master's goods. You know, how exactly that played out, I don't know, but either way, he likely stole something and then also fled. Uh, Under Roman law, either of those offenses committed by a slave could be punished by death, right? If the master so decided, he may have decided, oh no, I won't do that because, well, if he's dead, what good is he to me as a slave? Not very productive if he's dead. But if the master wanted to, for either of those offenses, he could have put his slave to death. Uh, so this was a significant uh, offense that was committed, and so Onesimus, right, he, he probably steals, flees, 
but then, of course, God has this great plan. This doesn't happen by coincidence, of course, but God's sort of at work and, and even using this for good. And, and go figure, Onesimus winds up in Rome, which is where Paul is at this point. Paul's in Rome. Uh, he's under house arrest, imprisoned, but not like in some dark dungeon at this point, awaiting his death, but under house arrest. So he's still sort of free to minister to people and, and be active in ministry a bit, but he is under house arrest. He has to stay there. And Onesimus winds up in all places, of course, in Rome and winds up bumping into Paul. Of course, no coincidence. God has orchestrated all of this. And as he bumps into Paul, well, what winds up happening? Paul ministers to him, preaches the gospel to him, uh, and he comes to faith, right? He comes to faith in Christ, becomes a believer. It's sort of like a, a child or son in the faith of Paul, since Paul is the one who led him to the Lord, right? And that's sort of the backdrop to all of this. But now sort of, well, what's the right thing? What needs to happen now? Well, what Paul does, and Onesimus is clearly on board with this 100%, well, Onesimus needs to go back to his master. He's sort of committed this offense uh, against his master Philemon, and so he needs to go back, right, uh, sort of bring about this reconciliation and wholeness where this offense has taken place, set things right. Of course, this is at risk to himself, right? He could be put to death, um, right? It's sort of a dangerous proposition, but as a believer, he knows it's the right thing to do. I need to sort of face what I've done. I need to go back to my master, not just sort of stay here in Rome uh, where it seems safe here, but go back, set things right, be reconciled to my master where there's now this brokenness, there needs to be wholeness. And Paul sort of sends him there as well. But Paul's not going to send him uh, to his master, you know, empty-handed, of course. But he says, well, let me write this letter to my good friend Philemon. And he was well acquainted with Philemon. He knew him. In fact, he will see this later in this, this letter, but he was the one who actually led Philemon to the Lord, right? So he had a personal relationship with Philemon and says, I'm not going to send you back to your master empty-handed and just hope it goes well for you. Who knows? But he says, I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to plead your case, and I'll write this letter to my good friend Philemon. And so that's what he does. And of course, he winds up uh, pleading, right, sort of interceding on behalf of Onesimus with, with Philemon here and pleading with Philemon to uh, show great grace, show great mercy, and extend forgiveness. Not to, to punish him as he could have under Roman law, but of course to operate in love for this new brother in the Lord, right? Onesimus wasn't a believer before, but now he is. He's a brother in Christ, and to, to of course show him great grace and mercy and forgiveness just as we have been shown. Uh, so that's sort of what this is, a uh, big, big idea, sort of where we're going, what this letter is all about. And now let's sort of dive in and we can kind of pick it apart. We'll go through verse by verse and then kind of come back big picture and apply what we have learned. So, verse 1. It says, Paul, this is sort of the heading, right, typical letter form, identify yourself as the one sending the letter, and then who are you sending the letter to? So Paul identifies himself, right, he's the one authoring this and, and writing the letter, sending it. Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus, so this is while he's in Rome under house arrest, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So technically, according to the heading here, Paul says, well, I'm writing this and Timothy. Really, at the heart of it, it's from Paul. It's Paul's letter. But he can still sort of attach Timothy's name to it as well as sort of, in some sense, co-author, though it's, it's really Paul who's the author of this letter. I'd say, really, he could be attaching Timothy's name in one of two possible ways. 
One is just that they, you know, he's sort of his closest, like a child in the Lord, of course, uh, sort of his co closest, dearest co-laborer in the gospel. Timothy was there with him in Rome, was clearly present with him. And as Paul's sending this letter, it could be as they're sort of doing ministry together, uh, both aware of this whole situation between Onesimus and Philemon. It's sort of everything that Paul's saying here, Timothy is, is in complete agreement with. And so Paul can sort of write this letter and send it, but also sort of tack on Timothy's name in the sense of he's also as my co-laborer in the gospel. He is in full agreement with this, right? He supports all that I'm saying here. Uh, that's very possible. Uh, it's also possible, and we see this in some of Paul's letters, that he is dictating the letters. He's not actually the one writing it on, you know, paper, so to speak, with a pen, that kind of a thing. Uh, he's actually dictating, and then this someone else, the technical term is an amenuensis. You don't need to know that, but uh, it was a common practice in that day and age in the ancient world, and even today you can still use dictation. Now we might use computers that can do it for us. Uh, but so Paul at times dictated his letters and someone else was actually the guy there writing it for him, right? So still authored by Paul, but he wasn't the one with the pen and paper in a sense writing it down. So it's possible here, and we actually see a little bit of reference to this where later in the letter Paul says that he's writing this part, you know, with his own hand, uh, which probably speaks to the fact that the rest of the letter here was not written by his own hand, but rather he dictated it. It's possible that Paul's dictating this, and Timothy is the one who's actually writing it down. And so he can say, well, who's sending this letter? Well, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I'm sending it, but then also, and Timothy, because he's the one who's writing it down. So it could be either sense, uh, but really at the heart of it, Paul is the one writing this. And as we see, in fact, in the main body of the letter, it's always I, singular Paul, not we, Timothy. Uh, and in fact, he's writing here, we're going to talk about this, who's he writing to? Uh, in the next verse here, at the end of verse 1 here, it says, to Philemon, so now we get to the recipients, to Philemon, who is really the main recipient. And in fact, what we see in the main body of this letter is, uh, the you that's used, Y-O-U in English here, right? We can't distinguish in, in English, is that singular, is that plural? Uh, but in the Greek, it's quite clear whether it's singular or plural. And in the main body of the letter, it's singular. It's quite clear that it's Paul, I, singular, not Timothy, really, in, in large part. It's Paul, singular, writing to Philemon, singular. But uh, in the heading, he does say, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, your meaning Philemon, in your home Philemon, right? Philemon was probably pretty well off. He had slaves. He had the nice big home, so they met in his house, right? So technically, this is addressed to the whole church, but really, it's from Paul to Philemon, and you only really see you in the plural here in the heading, and then in the initial greeting, and then right at the final greetings where they're sort of, hey, hey, hi, hi to the whole church. While he's really writing to Philemon, he sort of sends some greetings to the whole church. So that's why that's incorporated in, in the recipients. But really, it's from Paul to Philemon. And then the heading closes with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul writes here, sort of the main body of the letter, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love and faith which you have for the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Uh, just a little note if you're wondering, oh, what translation is, is Pastor Steve reading from? This is sort of largely the NIV, but I've sort of made my own little personal 
tweaks of it, not because I think I'm better at translating than those people who translated the NIV, but there are certain parts where you, know, you, could, you could go one way or the other, different possible translations, and one might render it one way or the other. So this is sort of a hybrid my slash NIV translation. But so he says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love and faith which you have for the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, right? So he's saying, I hear about your love and faith. Not that Paul was you know, not acquainted with Philemon. He knew him quite well, led him to the Lord, would have known that he was someone who had great love for the Lord, great faith, great love for fellow believers. But sort of even now as he's apart, sort of distance-wise, he's sort of apart from Philemon, he still sort of gets word from fellow believers, right, who maybe bring word from from a church way over there all the way to Paul at Rome, and he sort of gets the updates. And so he continues to hear in the updates about this great love and faith of Philemon, which he has for the Lord, so this great love for Lord, the Lord and faith in him, but also a great love, as it says, for all the saints. Right? And so his response as he sort of, you know, hears the updates about Philemon, his great love for the Lord, for fellow saints, right? What is his response just to thank the Lord as he remembers him in all of his prayers? And the specific reference here to the great love, of course, of Philemon, because ultimately, if we think of where this letter's going, Paul is going to ask Philemon to sort of act on the basis of love toward Onesimus and show him, right, loving him as a brother in Christ to then, out of that love, show him grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so Paul is very intentional in making reference to this great love of Philemon, right? He says, this is verse 6 now, I pray that you're... Now, this word kind of means sort of generosity, friendliness, kindness. I, I pray that your kindness, which arises from your faith, right, through faith in Christ, of course, when we come to faith in Christ, we're now a new creation in him. We have a new heart, new affections, a love for the Lord, right? We're a new creation in him. Uh, the Holy Spirit has brought about a change within us. And then even over the course of our lives as uh, followers of the Lord, the Holy Spirit continues to grow us and mature us and mold us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so this sort of this new Christ-likeness, right, and specifically he's talking about this generosity, friendliness, kindness, it sort of means all of those, and this sort of arises out of this faith. So he says, I pray that your kindness, which arises from your faith, may lead you effectively into a deeper knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. Right? And I'd say, here's what he has in mind, that as you sort of act on this kindness that you have, that sort of flows out of this faith, right? of course, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life when you came to faith, and as you continue to mature in the faith, there's this kindness that, that is developed and grows and, and, is, and is fostered. And as you sort of act on that kindness, that generosity, that friendliness, what then happens is, you, you know, Philemon, as he's doing this, and this is what Paul is praying will come, come to fruition, is that as Philemon's doing this and acting in kindness, he will sort of be reminded and then have a deeper understanding and appreciation of, of course, all of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ that flow out of his kindness, Christ's kindness shown toward us that we, of course, utterly do not deserve, right? So as Philemon's acting in kindness, then the response is he's sort of thinking about that is to say, well, oh, and now I think about all the wondrous kindness and love and mercy and grace that I've been shown by my Lord and my Savior, right? That's sort of the sense is what, what Paul is saying here. I pray for that. He says, I pray that your kindness, which arises from your faith, may lead you effectively into a deeper knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. And why does he say this? Well, he wants 
Philemon, of course, to sort of have a deeper knowledge, deeper appreciation of, of, of course, the kindness that God has to us and has shown us. And in that great kindness and love, all that he has sort of lavished upon us, every spiritual blessing, grace, forgiveness, mercy. And sort of then where he's going with this is, and now you ought to, of course, show kindness. And specifically, why don't you go and show that kindness and love and mercy and grace to your new brother in the Lord, your slave who ran away from you, Onesimus. So that's sort of why Paul is saying this. He's sort of setting the groundwork for his uh, request that he's about to make. And he goes on, verse 7. Your love has given me great joy and comfort because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Right? So this love, he's already spoken of this love before, in sort of a couple verses before, right? Uh, in verse 5, because I hear of your love and faith which you have for the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Here he's talking about that love specifically really in regard to the saints, right? So your love, as he says here, has given me great joy and comfort because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. So as you have been living out love, right? I know you, Philemon, and I've, I've heard the reports, and, and you're a person of great love, great love for your brother and sister in Christ. And as you have lived that out toward your brother and sister in Christ, you have refreshed their hearts is what he's saying. And that, he's saying, gives me, Paul, great joy to hear about. And again, calling attention to this love, which he's going to ask him to operate in regard to, to act in love toward Onesimus. So again, still sort of laying the, the foundation for this ultimate request. And so now we come to verse 8. Therefore, although I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, right, he's sort of saying, you know, I'm, I'm a leader in the faith, in the church, right, uh, knowing what is right, what you ought to do, I could realistically just command you and order you to do what you ought to do, to sort of, right, let Onesimus off, don't, don't carry out any sort of firm, strict punishment against him for stealing from you or running away as a slave, don't do that, right, I could command you in the faith not to do those things. But he says, that's not the way I'm going to operate, I'm going to appeal to you in a different way, right, I'm not going to command you, right, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love, right? This love that he's just been talking all about. You're such a loving person, Philemon. I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of that love that you ought to have for Onesimus as a brother in Christ, as a fellow person, but how much more so as a brother in Christ. So he goes on, right? Yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains, right? There became my son while I was in chains, right, in chains. The idea here is, is I, I led him to the Lord, to, to true saving faith, and he's sort of like a, a dear child of mine in the faith, sort of a spiritual son in a sense. He cares for him dearly, has a special heart and concern for him. And he says in verse 11, formerly, he was useless, or sort of useless, worthless. It can kind of mean both of those. And this is a, a play on words. Onesimus means useful. That's what the word means. That's what that name means. It was not an uncommon name for a slave, as you could sort of imagine. Well, you know, you have a slave. What, what name should he have? Well, let's call him useful, right? It makes sense. He's kind of useful. We'll, we'll name him that, right? Um, so it was not an uncommon name. It meant useful. But he's saying, formerly, he was useless to you. Useless, worthless, right? He was not some great faithful slave who sort of did his job, worked hard, 
bore much fruit for you. Rather, he was quite useless as a slave. He stole from you. He ran away. Probably Paul, you know, from Onesimus, knows even a little bit more that probably even before that happened, he probably wasn't the greatest, most productive slave. He was probably pretty useless in that regard. And so he says, formerly, he was useless to you. But now he has become useful, or again, not just useful, but sort of having worth as well. He's become useful, or he has worth, both to you and to me. Now, he was useful in the sense of, of practically in ministry. Paul sort of hints at this at where he's going, that he was actually helpful to Paul as Paul was under house arrest, sort of still carrying out his ministry, that Onesimus seemed to be quite useful to him, and he makes allusion to that uh, pretty soon. We'll get there. But more than that, he is not just useful, but has worth. The, meaning, the word there also has that meaning, right? But now he has worth both to you and to me, right? Now, as a, certainly any human being ought to be viewed with worth, but how much more so now that he's a brother in Christ does he have great worth both to you and to me, Paul is saying. And so he goes on, verse 12, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you, right? You see sort of Paul's great affection and love for Onesimus. And he's saying, I'm sending him back to you. Reading on, he says, verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could serve me on your behalf while I am in chains for the gospel, right? Probably that's sort of what's happened. Onesimus comes to faith, and now he's like, I, you know, I just want to help you, Paul, in your ministry. And Paul's saying, you know, I, I'd love to keep him here, right? I'd love to keep him here with me so that he can serve me, help me in ministry while I'm in chains for the gospel. And as he would be serving me, he'd be serving me on your behalf because, well, he's your slave, so if he's rendering me service and you're his owner, he's your slave, in a sense, by extension, you would be rendering service to me by having him be here serving me. And so he's saying, I'd, I'd love to do that, but right, he doesn't do it. Why? He explains, verse 14, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed would not be out of compulsion, but of your own accord, right? Basically, I, I'd love to have him here. It would be great and wonderful. He could help me in ministry, but I don't want to just sort of keep him here. And then, you know, I could still write you a letter, but the letter would instead be something to the effect of, you don't really have a choice in this, Philemon. Um, I'm just sort of dictating the terms of what's going to happen. I'm a leader in the church. Uh, he's a brother in Christ. You, you know, you've got to let him off the hook. You've got to forgive him. Uh, and he's just going to stay here now, and so he'll help me in ministry. <clears throat> and, and then from Philemon's perspective, it's sort of like, you didn't really give me a choice. You sort of forced me into it. And Paul's saying, right, I don't want to operate that way. I don't want you to feel compelled. I don't want you to, to do this good deed of sort of letting him, you know, not, not holding him accountable in the fullest sense and carrying out the full force of Roman law, putting him to death or some sort of severe punishment. Uh, not only doing that, but Paul's saying, you know, being gracious for you to now send him back to me, which would be Paul's ideal. Not just that Philemon would be gracious and merciful and say, hey, I forgive you. But Paul wants him to sort of go even a step further. He doesn't explicitly request this, but it's sort of implied. Not only do I want you to forgive him, be gracious, be merciful, but then I want you to send him right back here to me so he can help me. But Paul doesn't want to make that sort of a, a compelled thing. He wants Philemon to do that of his own accord, to just sort of in love for Onesimus to sort of say, you're off the hook. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to be gracious and merciful to you. Just as Christ, just as God has shown me great mercy and grace and has forgiven me, I'm going to extend forgiveness to you as well. And not only that, in love for Paul and out of a heart for him, hey, Paul, I'm going to send him to you. I don't need Onesimus here to help me do whatever he was doing, you know, uh, on my estate or whatnot. No, I'm going to send him to you, Paul, to help you out. Right? And he wants that to be something that comes from Philemon that isn't forced and compelled, but rather would be, in a sense, a, a, an act of great love for Onesimus and Paul and would be of his accord. 
So reading on verse 15, perhaps, and this isn't really Paul saying perhaps like, I don't know, you know, maybe this is the case or not. It's a little bit of more of a rhetorical usage of that. Uh, Paul knows that this is for sure the case, right? Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, right? Basically, perhaps, and not just perhaps, of course this is the case, God was at work in all of this. He allowed Onesimus to run away, right, to, to steal that stuff, run away, book it, flee, and orchestrated it all so that he'd bump into me, be led to the Lord, right, uh, enter into God's kingdom, and, and now you would wind up having him back, but not just as some useless slave, which is what he seemed to be, but so much better than that now as a dear brother in the Lord. And he goes on here. He says, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Right? What Paul's saying here is he's wondrously dear, incredibly very dear to us in the Lord, just by virtue of, of him being a brother in Christ. But, but this sort of this added way, even if it's a little bit less significant than the fact that he's a brother in the Lord, which is really what trumps, this still sort of in regard to human relationships, and that's what he means by both as a man and as a brother in the Lord, right? He's dear to both Paul and Philemon as a brother in the Lord, but in regard to human relationships, that's what he means by as a man, this sort of an extra dearness that Onesimus ought to have, you know, the, the way in which Philemon ought to view Onesimus, right? From Paul's perspective, talking about human relationships, well, he's just a friend, right? In regard to in the Lord, he's a brother in the Lord, and so he's very dear. But in regard to just sort of human relationships, he's just sort of a close friend, right? But from, uh, from Philemon's perspective, Onesimus is much more than that. He is part of his household. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's sort of an heir and a son and a child, but slaves were deemed part of one's household. And so this sort of this extra close tie uh, that Philemon has to Onesimus. And Paul's saying he's very dear to both of us, of course, being a brother in the Lord, but this sort of this little extra bonus dearness that he ought to have toward you, or that you ought to show him, right, of course, and it's the fact that he's even part of your household. He's not just a dear brother, but he's part of your household as well. And then he goes on. So if you consider me a, and this sort of means partner, fellow believer, right? It could be translated different ways. The idea is sort of closely tied. If you consider me one who's closely tied to you as, as like a fellow believer in the Lord, we're brothers in Christ. And so if you regard me in this way as one closely bound to you as a brother in the Lord, well then do this, he says, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Right, so here, it seems like the rest of this Paul is probably dictating, and now right here Paul's saying, I'm going to write this part with my own hand. Right, you could probably, if you're reading that original letter, you see a change in penmanship, and it's like, ooh, that looks like Paul's penmanship. That looks like that's him. Yep. And it's almost, in a sense, in effect, like him signing this and affirming the promise that he just made, right? He says, welcome him as you would welcome me. And then he goes further. He says, if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me, right? Charge it to my account. And then he started saying, like, I'm effectively signing it and saying, you know, formally, I agree to this. Don't think someone else wrote this and, and agreed to it on my behalf. No, I, Paul, am really assuring you of this. Charge it to my account. If he stole from you, this is sort of where scholars would look at this and say, probably uh, Onesimus took something here, right, that has some sort of value. He stole something. And Paul's saying, hey, if he's done you any wrong, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. 
I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Right? And then he goes on, he says, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Right? What does he mean here? He's saying, I'm the one who led you, Philemon, to the Lord. And so the sense, of course, to whom does he owe his life? It's to, to God, of course, to Christ. But there's a sense in which Paul can say, being the one who led you to the Lord so that you might receive everlasting life in him, there's a sense in which it's like you owe me your very life. You owe me your very self. And so it's sort of like if we really want to count up who owes whom what, right, even if you charge whatever Onesimus owes you to my account, well, let's look at what you owe me. You owe me your very self. And so I think we can sort of call it, you know, even here and say, even if you charge whatever Onesimus owes you to my account, I really don't owe you anything because you actually owe me your very life. But I love what, what Paul's doing here, right? And I, I particularly like what Martin Luther says about it, going way back to Martin Luther's time. Uh, and here's what Martin Luther says. He says, even as Christ did for us, with God the Father, thus Paul also does for Onesimus with Philemon. Right? Basically, what's Paul doing? He's saying, you know, I'll switch spots. He's talking to Philemon here. He says, I'll sort of trade places with Onesimus. You, Philemon, here's how you're to regard him, right? You're basically to treat him as you'd treat me. So he gets my place. You are to welcome him as you'd welcome me. So he gets my place. Uh, and what does Paul get? He says, well, whatever Onesimus owes you, sort of however he's indebted to you, we'll charge that to my account. Basically saying, hey, just sort of in your mind, switch spots for me and Onesimus. Whatever he owes you, put it on me. And, and as you'd welcome me in a favorable way, regard him that way. And that is exactly, and this is what, what Martin Luther says here, that's exactly what Christ has done for us with respect to God the Father. He basically says, hey, you know, my righteous standing before you will regard, God the Father, right, regard these people who put their faith and trust in me, right, regard them in that way. The righteous standing that I have, having lived a perfect life, right, credit that to, to their account, let that be credited to them, and regard them in that way, right? That's what Christ does. Paul does very much the same thing. And what does Christ do? He says, and whatever they owe you, whatever sin debt they have before you, will put that on my account, and I'll pay for it. I'll take care of it. Right? And so Paul here, I'd say, Paul knows exactly what he's doing, and he realizes, realizes he's, he's following Christ's lead, just as Christ interceded for us in that way and said, I'll take their place. Right? The, the, the good credit, in a sense, my righteousness that I have before you, let them have that, and I'll take their sin, I'll take their place, and I'll pay for it. And Paul knows he's following Christ's lead and interceding in that way and say, you know, the good standing I have with you, Philemon, right? Treat Onesimus in that way. Welcome him in a favorable way. And whatever, of course, he owes you, I'll take that upon myself. I'll pay it. I'll deal with it. And then he goes on, right, verse 20 here. He says, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. What is the benefit that he wants? He wants for, of course, Philemon to do what he's requesting, right? Uh, what is he requesting? Well, he's saying basically, you know, forgive, right? Extend grace and mercy to Onesimus. Uh, forgive him, right? Act in wondrous love toward your brother in Christ. Extend this forgiveness to him. And of course, what will be the result of that? Well, it will refresh his heart in Christ, refresh Paul's heart. And so he wants that benefit from Philemon, for Philemon to act in this way, and then the result will be, would be just seeing him act in love and grace and mercy and forgiveness toward his brother in Christ. It would just refresh his heart, Paul's heart, to see that. 
and Paul goes on, confident of your obedience, right? Paul knows Philemon. You know, he led him to the Lord. He, he knew him personally. He, he knows of his, his great love and faithfulness. And so he knows how Philemon is going to respond, right? It's not like he really, he still sends this letter. He still wants to send uh, Onesimus with a letter and make a plea for him. But nonetheless, he knows Philemon. He knows his heart. He's not really concerned about whether Philemon is just going to say, no, this Onesimus, I... I'm just done with him. He's a terrible slave, like off with his head. It's over for him, done, right? Paul knows Philemon's heart. He's confident of his obedience, that he's going to do what Paul said. So confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask, right? This is just sort of Philemon's heart. He's just so wondrous and loving and gracious that sort of like he's not just going to do the bare bones of what Paul requests, right? Explicitly, what does Paul in the most basic way request? Or he basically requests, well, hey, you know, uh, let's sort of trade accounts, you know, for me and Onesimus and welcome him as you'd welcome me and whatever he owes you, charge that to my account. That's sort of the most basic request that he made. And Paul says, I know that not only are you going to do that, but you're going to go beyond that. You're not really going to charge me and say, hey, whatever he stole or whatnot, whatever, you know, or if he missed time, he wasn't there working for how long, and you could quantify that in money in some way. He's not going to say, you know, I'm going to charge that to you, Paul, so please send some money back my way over here to the Colossian church, and I'll collect, right? Paul knows he's going to be gracious, even as he welcomes Onesimus in a favorable way as he'd welcome Paul back, right? He's not only going to do that, but he's also going to sort of wipe the slate clean, forgive him, and not just sort of transfer it to Paul and now make Paul pay. He's not going to make Paul pay as well. But I'd say in mind here is more than just that, knowing that we'll write, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. I would say Paul has in mind, he's sort of already a little bit implicitly, he didn't quite command this or, or ask this explicitly, but sort of implicitly, he made the request like, hey, you know, if you wouldn't mind, Philemon, could you kind of, once, once Onesimus arrives there and everything's sort of like patched up and everything's good, could you kind of just send him back this way to Rome, and then he can be here and he can help me in ministry as I'm serving the Lord while I'm in chains, right, while I'm under house arrest. He sort of implicitly made that request, and I'd say that's also what Paul has in mind, is I know not only are you going to forgive him, and not make him pay for what he's done. You're just going to be gracious and merciful and loving and forgive him. I know you're going to go beyond that, and you're going to send him back my way to serve me here, to help me in ministry. And I, it's even possible that Paul might have more in mind. We can't say for certain. We don't know uh, ev exactly, precisely how this story plays out, uh, how, it, how it concludes. But it's very possible that he has in mind also that uh, Philemon is actually going to set Onesimus free. Right, that, that he might say, not only are you going to be obedient and do all those things that I sort of just mentioned there, but also saying, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. It may be possible that he has in mind, hint, hint, here's also what I'd like you Philemon to do, and I know your heart, I know you're going to do it, and you're just going to set him free so that he's not a slave of yours anymore, but a free man. Uh, and that may very well be, right, I don't know, we can't say with certainty, is that exactly what Paul has in mind? Is that exactly what happens? Uh, we just don't know, but that is certainly possible. And now he goes on, now verse 22, we sort of get to, uh, you know, final greetings, sort of closing remarks, uh, a little bit practical, he says here, uh, and one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, and here he's talking to Philemon, prepare still sort of second person singular here as an imperative, so he's talking directly to Philemon, one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you. Now here you goes back to the plural. So he's, he's addressing the whole church here. I hope to be restored to you, the whole church there, the whole Colossian church, in answer to your prayers, still plural there, your prayers, plural. 
So the whole Colossian church has been praying for Paul that he'd be set free uh, from this house arrest, this imprisonment, and be restored, of course, being free and be able to, to go back and visit the Colossian church and be there with them. Uh, and so he's saying, hey, prepare a room for me, Philemon, because I hope to be restored to all of you, you Colossian Christians, in answer to your prayers. Uh, Epaphras, this is 23, verse 23, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends you, this is singular in case you're wondering, sends you Philemon greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. And this is back to plural, addressing the whole church, right? May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. But so I want to kind of look at this as a whole. It's easy if you're sort of digging deep into each individual verse and what does this mean, what does that mean? You can sort of lose sight of, of the big picture and say, you know, well, what is this all about? You know, it's easy to lose sight of that. And, and fundamentally, I'd say, if you're looking at the letter directly and the content of the letter, right, of course it's, I'd say, Paul making a plea here for Philemon to show grace and mercy and forgiveness. Of course, in light of the fact that we have been shown wondrous grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so whenever, and certainly has especially in mind any sort of uh, issues within the church, not that we shouldn't show grace and mercy and forgiveness when people outside of the church wrong us in some way, of course we, we should, but especially when we're talking internally within the church, now that Onesimus is a brother in Christ, whenever there's some sort of wrongdoing or offense, whenever you're wrong, right, what Paul is saying, and he's pleading here with, with Philemon for us to be gracious, just as we've been shown grace, to be gracious, be merciful, and extend forgiveness. And I'd say that's sort of at the heart of, of what this letter is all about. But I think there's also, that's sort of in, in a little bit of a context of the surrounding context and sort of surrounding narrative, uh, the narrative that surrounds this whole letter, right? Paul just doesn't write this letter in sort of a vacuum, but there's a whole context to it. And I'd say what's going on here is, is more than just Paul addressing Philemon and saying, you've been wronged, Philemon. I know that Onesimus has committed an offense against you, but I want you to, of course, be uh, gracious, merciful, extend forgiveness. But I'd say sort of the, the whole surrounding narrative and what's going on is, is that there is a pursuit of reconciliation and a pursuit of uh, where there's brokenness bringing about wholeness. And, and in regard to Philemon, that means his role in that is to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. Uh, but the whole surrounding sort of setting is this some sort of brokenness that has entered into the church community and life. And it is Onesimus here, of course, wronging Philemon, saying, hey, I'm just going to steal from you or likely steal from you. Book it, run away, flee. And so he does wrong by his master. And right, Paul wants to see reconciliation take place, and he wants to see sort of the wrongs set right. He wants to see where there's brokenness. He wants to see within the church instead, not brokenness, but wholeness. And so for Philemon specifically, that means, of course, well, just as we've been shown grace and mercy and forgiveness, well, you need to show that same grace and mercy and forgiveness. But what we also see is this sort of a, a part to this and a role in all of this that Onesimus has as well. And again, it's not that the letter itself directly addresses this, because it's directly written to Philemon and sort of what his role in bringing about reconciliation and, and wholeness is in this situation. But we also sort of see shining through here sort of implicitly also what Onesimus's role is in all of this. And Onesimus, he's certainly willing in all of this, a willing participant. It's not that Paul says, hey, I, I'm sending him back to you. He doesn't want to go, but we're making him 
him go. Of course, Onesimus is very much willingly going back. He recognizes that he has done something wrong. Uh, he has sort of created this brokenness, this relational brokenness within the church, uh, and that God doesn't delight in brokenness but wants to see wholeness in the body of Christ, of course. So he recognizes this and realizes, I need to do what's right. Even if it's at potential cost to myself, even if my very life might be on the line, and indeed it was on the line, if Philemon wanted to, by law, he could have put him to death, but he realizes I need to do what's right, right? He's come to faith in Christ. He knows I need to do what's right by the Lord. I need to go back. I need to pursue reconciliation with my master. I need to sort of face what I've done and where there's brokenness now, I need to pursue uh, to establish and bring about wholeness, right, in that situation. And so for him, that means saying, I got to go back. I got to acknowledge my wrong, right? And that's sort of implicitly stated here. That's what he's doing. That's his role in all of this, to be sent back, right? Paul's saying, I'd love to have him stay here, but he's going to go back because that's his part in seeking to bring about reconciliation and wholeness in the church where this brokenness has, has taken place, right? His role is to go, acknowledge what he's done, right? Apologize, ask for forgiveness, but you Philemon, you're to be gracious, you're to be merciful, you're to forgive, of course, right? But I'd say that there's sort of a, a third role here. It's not just the role of Philemon that's sort of directly addressed in this letter. And, of course, that's the, the be gracious and, and extend forgiveness, of course. It's not just Onesimus and his role as we look at sort of the surrounding narrative that's sort of implicitly stated and, and spoken of in this letter. It's not just his role of being the one to now go and, and, and sort of uh, pursue reconciliation and wholeness by going to the one he's offended and, and seeking to make things right there and, and do his part to bring wholeness there and, in a restored relationship. But there's also now this person who's just sort of a third party. He's not the one who was wronged. He's not the one who committed the wrong, right? I'm talking about Paul. He's sort of what you might look at and, and say, well, he's sort of this neutral third party. He's just some fellow brother in Christ. And I think all too often, if we were in his shoes, our response would be sort of like, I'm not getting into the middle of that. You know, I don't want any part of that. That's a pretty heated debate and argument, and, you know, someone's life's on the line. I don't want to be in the middle of it. I'm just going to steer clear, like, I'll let those two hash it out, and, and however it goes, it goes. But Paul says, no, 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 that's not the role of a brother in Christ, right? If we see a, a relational breakdown, if we see brokenness enter into relationships and enter the church, right, even if we're not the one who did committed the wrong, if we're not the one who is wrong, that doesn't matter. We still need to insert ourselves into that situation, not like get in the middle of it in a meddling sort of way, of course, but rather, no, put ourselves in the middle so as to intercede, so as to seek to bring about a, a reconciliation and a wholeness in that broken situation. And that's exactly what Paul does. He doesn't say, I'm going to do nothing and hopefully... Philemon and Onesimus do the right thing and it all works out. He says, no, no, no. As a, as a brother in Christ, I want to see wholeness here. I don't want to see brokenness. I want to insert myself into this situation and plead with both Right? You could sort of imagine Paul, even before he writes this letter, pleading with Onesimus, encouraging him to do the right thing, which is to go back and, and make things right and seek reconciliation and wholeness. But he's not just going to go and, and plead with the party who did the wrong and say, you need to do your part. But he also now goes and pleads with the person who was wrong and says, you know, you have a part in this too. When he comes before you seeking to make things right, you need to be gracious. You need to be merciful. You need to extend forgiveness, right? And so we see these three different roles, right? We have sort of the person who committed the wrong, we have the one uh, who was wronged, and then we have this third party, Paul, who inserts himself, uh, intercedes, and seeks to pursue uh, and help to bring about this reconciliation uh, and wholeness. And so I'd say as we look at this letter as a whole, right, if we look at 
the, the sort of at the heart, the content of it, it's mostly about Philemon. It's really about his role in the extending of grace and forgiveness, right, showing mercy. But I think if we look at the context and sort of take that uh, in view and look at sort of the whole narrative context surrounding the letter, that really the big picture, the big idea, really is centered on the issue of not just brokenness, but when there's brokenness, what we are to do to bring about reconciliation and wholeness within the life of the church. That is, when there's some sort of wrong, when brokenness enters the life of the church and, and, and relationships, what are we as Christians to do? And now we see what we are to do. We see it in this letter in the whole context, and we are to pursue relentlessly reconciliation and to pursue wholeness. And I want to look at each of those three roles. I sort of already have a little bit, but I want to dive a little deeper and look at those three different situations. The situation of Paul, the situation of Onesimus, the situation of Philemon. Not that we know exactly how Philemon responds, but I think it's a safe assumption. Paul is so confident, right, that he says in verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. I think it's safe to assume that he responded as Paul desired him to do so uh, and was gracious and merciful and extended forgiveness. And so I want to look at those three situations and sort of apply them to our lives. Sort of general application, what's our application, of course, to pursue reconciliation, to pursue wholeness in the life of the church. And the reality is we're all broken, fallen people, right? Even if we love the Lord, there's still sin in our lives, and as we're living in community with one another, it's only a matter of time before some sort of wrong is committed. Uh, hopefully it's not, you know, being a slave and stealing and running off for some other city. I don't expect that to quite play out here at New Hope Chapel. But nonetheless, right, if we're broken, fallen individuals, and we are, and we're engaging in life with other people in the church, it's only a matter of time before we're an Onesimus and we wrong someone, or we're like Philemon and we wind up wronged, or maybe we're like Paul and we're sort of the third party and we see it playing out and well what are we to do about it how do we respond do we involve ourselves in it do we just sort of stay neutral and say I don't want to get into the middle of it uh, and I, I, I sort of want to take a look at these situations and, and really show how we ought to operate as a church uh, in light of brokenness in the church and I take a look at, at Onesimus, right? And the reality is, again, even in spite of our love for the Lord, we still struggle with sin. It's only a matter of time before you're going to be an Onesimus. Not necessarily every specific being the same, but it's only a matter of time before you're going to wrong someone in some way. Not that we should, should make light of it and it's no big deal, but it's the reality of brokenness and sin in our lives, and, and that's going to happen at times in the life of the church, and we're going to wind up wronging someone in some sort of way, offending someone, hurting someone, and what should our response be? I think all too often, whether it's a pride issue or maybe we're just sort of oblivious to our sin and what we've done or how we've wronged someone, but I think all too often we just want to sweep it under the rug. It's all too difficult at times to go to someone and, and sort of pursue to set things right and be reconciled to the person and seek wholeness. It, it's, it's often all too difficult to do that and easier to sort of sweep it under the rug and say, it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, I shouldn't have said this. I know that hurt their feelings or I shouldn't have done that, but it's not the end of the world and we sort of sweep it under the rug, no big deal. But that's not what Onesimus did. Yes, his offense might seem a little bit greater, but nonetheless, he didn't sweep it under the rug, but he said, I wronged someone, and what do I need to do? I need to go and set it right. I need to pursue reconciliation. I need to pursue a restored relationship with that person in wholeness and go to them, right? So if we've wronged someone, we need to pursue that reconciliation and wholeness. We need to go to them and say, you know, I acknowledge my wrongdoing. I did this. I hurt your feelings. I said this. I did that. I shouldn't 
have, whatever it was, sort of confess that wrongdoing, acknowledge it, and apologize and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, right? And that's sort of the role of Onesimus, and if we're in his shoes and we've done wrong, that needs to be our role, to acknowledge our wrongdoing and, and do that, apologize to the person, seek forgiveness, uh, seeking then a restored relationship. But maybe at times we're not the Onesimus, we're going to be the Philemon, right? And that's going to happen at times where it's not you committing the offense, you're going to be the one who's the party that's offended. Someone wrongs you in some way, they hurt your feelings, they say something, they do something that wasn't very nice or mean or whatever, whatever it is, and they've wronged you. And it can be all too easy in those situations to say, that was just mean of that person, that was cruel, and just sort of to, to hold a grudge in some sort of way and, and not let that go, but sort of cling to that offense. Uh, and maybe they don't come to you and they they don't, they don't apologize, and that just uh, angers you more, and you sort of let that anger sort of fester, and it becomes bitterness, and it, it just grows and grows and grows, and it creates a breakdown in the relationship and in the health of the church. Right? It can be all too easy to do that rather than to do what Philemon is called to do. And Philemon is called to do what Christ has done for him, right? to extend wondrous grace and mercy and just to forgive when the person who comes to you, right, says, I'm sorry, I've, I've messed up, I shouldn't have done this, I know I hurt your feelings, just to, to, to forgive and say, I forgive you, right? I'm going to show you grace, I'm going to show you mercy, I'm going to forgive. And even if they don't come to you, because it's very possible, maybe they're not even aware of what they did, or maybe they just are too proud to come and humble themselves and acknowledge their wrongdoing, we still need to do what Philemon is called to do, to be gracious, not to hold on to the offense, but to be gracious, merciful, and extend that forgiveness and forgive our brothers and sisters. And again, this doesn't go just for within the church, but even if someone outside of the church commits some offense, we need to extend that forgiveness. But now I want to get to, to Paul's role, and I think this is in many ways probably the toughest role, uh, probably the one that, that we're probably most averse to. I think, you know, maybe if we at least grew up in a decent home and early on it was instilled in us, you know, when you do something wrong, you apologize, you say you're sorry, ask for forgiveness, you know, and then when they do that, then you say, oh, I forgive you, you know, we do that with our kids. Oftentimes I feel like the, you know, the I forgive you or the I'm sorry seems a little less than genuine from my kids. Uh, probably it was that way when I was a kid as well. But nonetheless, you sort of instill those values in the importance of that. So I think at times that comes a little bit more naturally to us. Right? But what probably doesn't come as naturally to us is the role of Paul, where we're not involved in the incident or the offense or whatever took place, you know, how someone was wrong. And we, we're sort of aware of it. We know it took place, but we're just sort of this neutral third party. And I think all too often it's like, we don't like conflict. I don't want to get in the middle of that. It's just not going to go well for me. I just know it. You know, somehow I'm going to get sucked in, and then I'm going to be perceived as on this person's side, and, and I'll, be, uh, you know, I'll somehow be, be slandered in the midst of it, and people say, I took this person's side. It's just it's not going to go well for me. I don't need the headache. I don't need the stress. I'll just sort of stay neutral, and hopefully they work it out. I think that's all too often probably our perspective, and yet it's not the perspective we ought to have. It is very important for us, right? All too often, right, the person who, who's wronged or who has been wronged, maybe they're struggling to do their role faithfully. Maybe they're struggling to do what Onesimus faithfully did or Philemon. And maybe it takes that third party, that sort of neutral third party who sees 
you know, all that's going on to come in, insert themselves into, you know, the situation and to seek to bring the two parties together and say, I know this hurt. I know things. Oftentimes, it's not even just one-sided. Oftentimes, both sides have said things hurtful to the other or whatever it might be. There can be wrongs going both directions to insert themselves into the dispute, into the situation, and seek to bring the two parties together for there to be healing, for there to be reconciliation, a restored relationship, and just wholeness, right? And God desires to see that in his church. I think it's awfully difficult at times to be that Paul, but we need to be like him and recognize that God is a God who delights in reconciliation. He delights in reconciling us to himself through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he delights in seeing reconciliation and wholeness in the life of his church, right? And it certainly saddens him when he sees relationships breaking down and this hurt and this brokenness, and it's not what he wants to see. And I think all too often you see it in churches where, you know, there's some sort of conflict, there's some sort of disagreement, and all too often the way it ends is not in a healthy way with reconciliation and now wholeness in the life of the church and healing, but all too often it's, well, someone just leaves the church because that's the easiest solution. Someone leaves, and that's sort of how you solve the conflict by never really solving it, but at least it's not that this friction present. And that's not how the church ought to operate, but the church should be a church, a place where people pursue reconciliation and wholeness. And so I want to challenge us to really uh, live out what we see here in this letter, and not just the content of the letter itself, but even sort of the surrounding narrative and situation that we see here. I want to challenge us to be like Onesimus when we've committed some sort of wrong. Do whatever it takes to be reconciled to that person. Even if it means, you know, possible cost to yourself, it meant great cost, potentially, to Onesimus. And yet he was willing to take that risk to do what was right and pursue wholeness and reconciliation. Be like Onesimus if you've done wrong. If someone's wronged you, be like what Philemon is commanded to do, which I think it's safe to assume he really did do, and freely, graciously extend forgiveness, right? Don't harbor that grudge. Don't even say, I forgive you, but not really forgive. All too often, I think we're guilty of that. We say it because we know we should, but in our heart of hearts, we don't forgive. But really, truly forgive. Don't hold on to the offense. Be gracious. Be merciful as we've been shown grace and mercy and extend forgiveness if we've been forgiven. Right, and then also, if you're that third party, be like Paul. Don't say, I'm not getting into the middle of it, but say, no, where I need to be is right in the middle of it in a healthy way, bringing the people together, the offended parties, uh, the parties involved, bringing them together to help bring about reconciliation and wholeness, right? For the health of the church, that the church might thrive and be that healthy church and that unified church that God delights in and desires, but ultimately to do it all for the Lord and service to him. It's what he wants and we ought to do it all for him and service to him for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, issues and conflict and wrongdoing at times just has a way of working itself into the church. Where we're not perfect, we're still broken, we're fallen, and it's just going to happen. Not that I think New Hope Chapel is particularly guilty of that, by no means, but nonetheless, it happens, Lord. And we see here in Philemon, and just sort of the whole surrounding story, Lord, the context of it, we see that happening there in that Colossian church 2,000 or so years ago, where one person wronged another. And in that story and in this letter, we see the appropriate Christian response for the one who committed the offense to seek to make it right, to go to the person that was wronged, 
seeking reconciliation, seeking to bring about wholeness where he had brought about brokenness, Lord, even at risk and cost to himself. We see also here the response of the person who was wronged and the appropriate response of that person to extend forgiveness, to extend that grace and mercy just to forgive, Lord, as you have done for us, showing us grace and mercy and forgiving us, and we are to reflect that. And may we do that, Lord. When we're wronged, may we not hold on to the offense, may we not hold a grudge, but freely, graciously forgive, Lord. And then I think of Paul's example as well, being that third party. All too often, we want no part of any conflict, but may we jump in headfirst to help bring about a reuniting of the two parties at conflict, seeking to bring about restoration and reconciliation and wholeness in every way because it's what you delight in. And may we faithfully live that out here at New Hope Chapel. May your church all over the globe faithfully live that out in service to you for the health of the church and also to be a powerful testimony to you, to the world that is, Lord, of you, a God of reconciliation. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.